Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, this is Mark Bianchi from the Cowan Energy team. In this episode of the Cowan Energy Transition Podcast, we're speaking with Core Labs on carbon capture. Like many companies in the oil service industry, Core has a suite of capabilities that can be valuable in energy transition. And in this case, it's their reservoir analysis that'll be used to evaluate carbon storage sites. Uh, so team, uh, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, we've got um, Larry Bruno, who's chairman and CEO, uh, Alistair Crombie, who's vice president of reservoir description, and Andrew Benson, who's vice president of corporate sustainability and energy transition. Um, so with that, maybe each of you could go around the table and, and give a quick introduction. And then Larry, maybe um, if you could give us an overview on core, uh, come up, kind of from a, a really high level for, for people that might not be as familiar. Sure, Mark, thanks. Always a pleasure to, to uh, engage with you and, and with your audience. Uh, always get some very thought-provoking questions that come out. And hopefully we can uh, tell people about uh, how Core Labs, uh, the role that we're gonna play in this uh, emerging uh, business opportunity. Um, so um, I'm a geologist by background, um, uh, came up through the ranks of uh, doing uh, evaluation of rocks uh, for oil and gas exploration, uh, worked my way up through the, the uh, system. So uh, effectively been with CoreLab my whole career, got uh, an acquisition of a small company in uh, 1999, um, but haven't changed jobs since I got out of grad school. Um, and um, uh, now uh, have the uh, the great opportunity to represent the the, the hardworking, innovative folks here at CoreLab. And so let me introduce Alistair Crombie. Alistair, why don't you tell them a little about your background? Yeah. Hey, Mark. Uh, yeah. So I uh, started my career at CoreLab in Aberdeen uh, back in our early 90s. Uh, spent several years there, moved down to BP in London, had a, had a stint down in London as our fluid specialist background as a chemist, uh, moved back to Aberdeen, and then found my way to the Middle East in Abu Dhabi, running the facility down there as the, the fluid specialist and then ultimately the general manager. I spent 18 years down there before uh, moving across into this new role as VP of Reservoir Description here in Houston. So, Okay, and Andrew? Yeah, so I started my career uh, with a, a, a company that was uh, shortly after I started acquired by Coral Laboratory. Uh, so started off as a as a geologist with Coral Lab, um, stayed for a few years, and and took a long stint at a at a mid cap operator uh, doing uh, domestic uh, EMP, and stayed there for a pretty pretty long time until an opportunity uh, came up here back at Coral Laboratories to do some business development. Uh, that sort of migrated into a, a role focusing on business development as it pertains to the energy transition. Uh, and then coupled with that, I've now taken on some additional responsibilities as the uh, VP of corporate responsibility or corporate sustainability, uh, which is kind of a hand in hand uh, approach to that, you know, sustainability energy transition uh, world. Yeah. So maybe a little bit about core lab mark. So um, for those that don't know us, we are um, pretty, uh, internationally exposed company, uh, about 70% of our revenue traces to international projects. We might do um, a good part of that work in uh, the U.S. 
uh, at our major laboratories here, but the projects generate from around the world. We have a hub and spoke structure with advanced technology centers strategically positioned around the planet that serves as a pipeline for projects uh, to come into the company. We operate in two business segments, uh, reservoir description and production enhancement. So when you think about reservoir description, think about a laboratory-based business where we'll analyze rocks and reservoir fluids and the derived products that come from those reservoir fluids. When we talk about reservoir fluids, we're talking about crude oil, natural gas, and formation water. So a lot of expertise on the reservoir description side on understanding subsurface geology and the interaction of fluids through those rocks. One of our, I would say, our, our tagline expertise is we understand uh, and, and have and are the world's leading um, uh, commercial laboratory for analyzing fluid flow through porous rocks. And that's going to come back around as we talk about CCS here, because it's the same type of technology that's going to be deployed that we've been using to work on getting oil and gas out of rocks. We're going to talk about what that can tell us about the ability to put CO2 into the rocks. Uh, the other segment of the company, production enhancement, uh, think of that as um, a, a more U.S. exposed business. But in that segment, uh, two main areas of, of activity. One is on completion products. When you drill a well into the subsurface that you were going to try to get oil and gas out of or put CO2 into, you set you drill that hole, you set pipe in that hole called casing, and then you have to penetrate or perforate that casing to create conduits for the fluids to either get out of the rocks or into the rocks. And so we, we make those energetic projects that perforate through that steel casing and create those avenues of, of communication with, with the, between the formation and the well bore. We also do diagnostic services. And by that, we mean we, we uh, introduce chemical molecules into, say, a frac design or a completion design. And from that, we can help our clients understand if they completed the well the way they uh, intended to. So to think about this mental picture for, say, uh, a well in the Permian Basin that might be 10,000 feet down and 10,000 foot lateral. So add that all up. You're 20,000 feet away from the surface facilities for that well. And you're trying to figure out, did I execute my completion the way I intended it to in the subsurface? And by using the diagnostics, we could help our clients understand, did, did they open up all the areas of the, the well that they wanted to communicate with and give them a better idea whether their completion program was effective or whether they need to do remediation on it. One of the things that I would say that you'll find about CoreLab is where our expertise is close to the well bore. Uh, that's kind of our wheelhouse, whether it's analyzing the rocks or fluids, completing the wells or determining whether the completion went the way they wanted close to the well bore, that's our place. Uh, one of the things that, Mark, you've heard me say many times, and, and I, I say it for effect, but it really is true, I hate rust. Um, we're not a heavy metal company. Um, when you compare Core Lab to most of the other oil field service companies, what you're going to find is they're a lot of metal, and we're not. And it's not to say that, uh, speak pejoratively about metal, but you, 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 can't, you could not have an oil industry without the metal-heavy companies, the rigs, and the, and the pressure pumpers and all. You have to have that to have an oil industry. That's just not what we do. We're, we're more of a technology, uh, scientific approach, helping our clients get the most out of their wells through evaluating the rocks and fluids or making their completions better. That, that's a great overview, Larry. Um, yeah. Maybe, um, so now drilling down into the, the CCS part of it, if I, if I heard right, 
all that's going to sit within the the reservoir description side of the business. And essentially, you're you're, you're analyzing the geology. Um, and but but what specifically are you doing there? And and how is it different, if at all, to the oil and gas work? You mentioned you know oil and gas is coming out. In this case, CO two is going in. But I suspect there's some uh, some technical difference beyond beyond that. Yeah, Mark, I'll hand it over to Alistair maybe to get us started on that. But um, just to to maybe um, make a point there, the early uh, sort of our first touch on these projects is going to be on the reservoir description side. But eventually, wells are going to have to get drilled and uh, perforated and completed. So there'll be opportunities for production enhancement as well. Our sort of our first touch at these is evaluating the rocks and fluids. So Alistair, maybe you could give us some background on that or yeah so I, I would say just to, to add to what Larry was saying there our immediate uh, opportunity here really comes within the reservoir description segment of core lab we we do see in time as, as they start to drill injection wells we see uh, the production enhancement side uh, as they complete uh, perforate these wells that there's opportunities there but uh, at the present moment uh, the opportunity lies within reservoir description so uh, you know, many of the same subsurface risks that are associated with uh, oil and gas projects also exist for CCS projects. So, um, you know, I, I look at this as, and I've, I've tried to define this as a CSI, so a containment, storage, and injection. So um, you can also think of, of flow there as well. So anytime that you, when we think about flow, we're thinking about uh, both injectivity as well as how the fluids, once you inject that CO2, how that fluids, uh, that CO2 and water mixture will flow through the, the rocks. Um, and also when you consider containment, um, you know, the seal, what, what, what uh, holds that fluids in place, the geomechanical and chemical properties uh, that contain the water uh, would be affected. If, if you take CO2 and you mix it with water, you are essentially uh, creating carbonic acid there. And that carbonic acid can, uh, can react with that seal. So uh, what might be okay to, to contain water may not be okay to contain a, a mixture of CO2 and water. So um, you know, the size and the properties of the CO2 molecule are completely different than that of water. So injecting CO2 forms comp uh, that carbonic acid, reacts with the minerals, can... Uh, can cause fines to, and, and, uh, and uh, things to precipitate out of there. And that can alter the permeability and how that fluid flows through the rock. So that's where we see uh, the reservoir description. That's what we're uh, focused on right now. So I think Mark, if you take a step back a little bit and look at a CCS project that somebody might have on the drawing board here, they're gonna put most of the money in that project into the, uh, turn it around now, upstream is gonna mean the emitters, right? And so they're gonna put most of the money into capturing the CO2 at the, at the source that's being created where, where the combustion is taking place and into the transportation or the midstream to get that CO2 into uh, transport, right? But the biggest risk in any of these projects is miscalculating or not fully appreciating the complexities of the geologic injection site. Okay, so, so um, that's really where our first touch is gonna be, is in helping to de-risk those subsurface uncertainties about the rock. So might be getting a little bit ahead here, but one of the things that people have looked at early on was that, hey, we've got all these places where we've been producing oil and gas, 
let's just drive the CO2 into that because we've created accommodation space by removing oil and gas, large volumes over decades. Um, I'd say many companies have turned away from that thought because while you may have accommodation space, you have also got a lot of penetration. So say in the Permian Basin, you might have thousands and thousands of, of, of penetrations in an area that are all sources of potential leaks to your program. And, and so a lot of the targets that people are looking at uh, to pursue are saline aquifers. And one of the things with those is, since there's very little money in producing salt water, no one's really looked at these. So if they were drilling an oil, uh, an oil and gas well, say in the Gulf Coast, down to the Miocene at, at 15 or 17,000 feet, they just drilled right on through the saline aquifers at say six or 8,000 feet. And they might've logged it, they may not have logged it. They didn't pay much attention to it because there wasn't any economic interest. Now they've got to go back and evaluate those rocks and those fluids. Does it, um, if they did log it, does that make it less likely that your services would be needed? Or, or how does the kind of logging versus rock and fluid analysis um, interplay uh, matter for this sort of stuff? Yeah, so there are, there are two companies with blue logos that might take give slightly different answers on that. Um, one of the things that CoreLab has always done is objectively made hard physical measurements. And a, uh, an important part of why we do that is to calibrate logs. Logs are always going to be based on some model of physical assumption. And so it'll try to shoot a sonic wave through a rock or, or a neutron pulse into a rock. And from that, they'll try to deduce things like porosity. Very important in the CCS project. If you're trying to figure out the storage capacity, you've got to know about how much storage capacity or porosity is there. And then, and then another question is how much water is, is present in, the, in that rock and what's the salinity of that water. And so they'll use a log that'll put an electrical conductance out or, 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 a very, or an NMR signal, and they'll try to deduce that. By cutting core, we get the hard physical measurements, and then our clients take the, the, the uh, log data and they shift it or calibrate it back to the, the ground truth, if you will, that we provide with the hard physical measurements. So um, a, a great example to put it into maybe oil and gas space is uh, the, the big oil and gas project going on on the planet. Uh, people have to use core, core lab to calibrate the hard physical measurements that the logs will be moved to and shifted. So no change on the CCS side, still have to calibrate those logs. Okay. And maybe just on, on the rock analysis side, um, what's the competitive landscape like that as it relates to, to CCS? If I, if I go back several years, I think you guys would have said, you know, there's, there's big operations inside the majors that, that do their own analysis. Um, I'm not sure what the state of that is now, given what's happened in the industry the past few years, but also are they equipped and are they interested in doing this, this type of CCS analysis like you're, you're talking about? Yeah. So I think, I think that's um, the, the landscape is, is very much uh, aligned the same way it is toward the upstream side of, of oil and gas production in that um, the, the NOCs and the IOCs, for example, uh, some of them still maintain internal labs. Some of them have gotten out of that business. And I talk about over the arc of my career that Marathon uh, used to have a research lab uh, up in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, previous downcycle, they didn't downsize it, gone. Um, Arco had a big research facility in Plano, Texas uh, years ago. It's now the, uh, I think it's the NTT building. It became the Dell building and then the NTT building. 
uh, down there, that, that old Arco lab. And so after BP bought them, they didn't downsize it. That lab is gone. Uh, this cycle, Conoco closed their lab. So there are fewer internal labs than there used to be. And most of, mostly because the clients have recognized that when they need this type of work, they're better off bringing it to Coral Lab to do. Now, there are still some of the IOCs and the NOCs, so the Exxons of the world, the Chevrons of the world, um, the, the Aramcos of the world, the uh, Petrobras of the world. They have internal labs, and they can do this type of work, and we know they can do it because many of them are equipped with uh, laboratory equipment that we built and sold to them. So they have capacity to do that. I think the better way to understand that is who doesn't have labs to do that? And basically, the answer is everybody else. So if you're another company that's that's interested in this space or going to be engaged in a project like this, whether you're an Oxy or an EOG or, um, or now a Conoco, you're going to have to look for a service provider for it. And we're the premier provider for that. Okay, great. Well, um, I, I want to get into some of some of your projects now and some of the announcements you guys have made. So maybe if, if you could just give us an overview of, of the recent announcements you've had. Um, there's some collaborations and then there's the consortium. So just sort of introduce us to all that stuff, if you could. Yeah, Andrew, why don't you take that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, really CoreLab has a long history of providing uh, joint industry type projects uh, and consortia that, that serve to accelerate uh, development of knowledge and best practices within specific regions or basins or play types or, or practices. If you want to take practices apart, you're talking completions or, or profit types or looking at enhanced oil recovery maybe as a specific practice. And through those studies and, and the in-house experts we have here at CoreLab that drive those studies, uh, we've been able to help our clients achieve and maintain leading edge positions as the industry has evolved through its many cycles. And again, I'm talking conventional reservoirs, EOR, deep water, unconventional gas and oil plays, uh, and that evolution. And, and now we're talking about CCS. So what we've done recently, and this is part of the, some of the recent press that you've seen, is we've launched the CCS consortium. And the pur purpose of that will be to do what we've done in the past, and that is to, to build a forum for knowledge development as the, the industry continues to emerge and evolve. And so the members we have signed up right now include the likes of Shell, Chevron, Talus, EOG, Repsol, GX, Nippon. And we think that list is, is likely to grow as, as, as folks figure out what they're missing out on. You know, if you were to say, we're the top two or three questions that um, you and the, and the participants of this consortium are, are looking, to, looking to answer. Yes. Yeah, so as Alistair touched on earlier, we, we, uh, we, we sort of take apart the, the CCS topic or, or subject into topics, uh, you know, around capacity, injectivity, and containment. And right now, uh, what we've done is, is because containment seems to really rise to the surface uh, or the top level of interest, not only for the operators, but also the regulators that, that are involved in overseeing all this, uh, containment is, you know, uh, capacity and injectivity are, are important economic parameters and operational parameters for folks involved, but secure containment sort of seems to, to carry the day as far as priority. And so that's the, 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 the track that we're taking for the inaugural year of this consortium. It's where a lot of our clients' minds are right now. Um, and, and so we're, we're here to, to sort of follow their direction, follow their lead and solve their problems. So when we talk about containment here, we're talking about identifying natural containment. So 
that is impermeable layers of rock that would uh, provide the, the, the lid to the pot that they're trying to fill with CO2 so that it doesn't just drift off into shallower strata and eventually into drinking water and then back out to the surface. So that's the, we're talking about containment there. And just like in an oil and gas reservoir, you need that seal rock. You need closure, if you will, is what it's, how it's referred to, to make sure that you have that lid on the pot so that the CO2 you put in will stay where you intend to put it. Yeah, and maybe this is a good opportunity to ask like kind of the, um, the generalist question on that, because I think people are concerned about uh, you know, the, the general public is concerned about putting CO2 in the ground and what's the risk of it coming out of the ground. And the industry has generally said, hey, the oil and gas has been in there for millions of years and it doesn't come out unless we drill a well. So we're not worried. But, you know, maybe maybe there's a finer point you can put on that explanation. Yeah, Andrew, why don't you? Yeah. So it's, a, you know, cer certainly a concern. I mean, it's certainly a, a societal concern, but it's, you know, when you, when you think about the regulatory horsepower that is being used and brought to bear to oversee these operations, you know, there's, there's a lot of infrastructure and mechanism in place to see to it that the operators interested in CCS are doing their part, doing the science, providing the, the measurements and, and the predictions and the modeling that's needed to ensure that that C, uh, CO2, once it's injected, will stay put. And so, you know, again, this is a this is not a, a process that any anybody is embarking on in a half-cocked way. And the operators involved, operators having an interest in this, are very well versed in, in this being part of the process, the data collection being part of the process, and providing some ground truth evidence and, 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 uh, and support to back up their claims that what they put in is going to stay put. And, and how is the results of the analysis that you guys are doing, does that find its way into specific checklists or, or what, whatever the regulatory approval process is? Are, are there, you know, outputs of the analysis you're doing that are going into the regulatory filing or regulatory uh, process that, that we have? I mean, the thing I'm thinking of this class six license, but maybe there's other elements of the, of the process. No, Mark, you hit, hit, hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, that's that's one of uh, one of our priorities right now is is helping our clients uh, understand and and adhere to those Class Six requirements. So you know, Class Six that's the the EPA permit required to inject CO two into the ground for sequestration, and and it's a process. And a lot of the requirements are the EPA lays them out, but I'm gonna have to say they're they're a little bit vague in their language. They're not going to tell you exactly how to find all the answers, but they are going to tell you what answers they want to see. And so it's incumbent on us to help our clients understand how to get there, uh, how to collect the right data, and, and how to do it in a cost-effective and efficient way. So, so Mark, let me add a couple points here. So one thing about uh, containment, uh, let me go back on that, is um, many people may not uh, know the history here, but uh, the Spanish uh, we're reporting tar balls washing up on the beaches in Texas in the 1700s. There are natural seepages. And so oil and gas reservoirs do leak in places. La Brea Tar Pits is, is an oil and gas deposit right at the surface. You can drive down, I guess, I think it's Wilshire Boulevard, and there it is right there. Uh, so oil and gas does find its way out of leaky containers. And so what our clients are going to do is they're going to have to validate a stratigraphic model here where they're going to core through the seal rock and they're going to core through the 
um, through the injection target. And then they're also going to take stuff that's kind of outside of Core Labs wheelhouse. They're going to look at seismic pictures of this of this pot, if you will, or this this container, and say, is it faulted? Is are there leaky places around this uh, container that I might have to avoid or stay away from? Because if I put that CO two in there, it may just travel up a fault plane, and and I've lost my containment. Um, one of the ways I've, I've I've tried to explain what we do to help our clients on the oil and gas side that I think is applicable here is oil and gas um, reservoir engineers are not much different than financial analysts. You get hard data points where you can, you make assumptions where you have to, and then you try to model future performance. Well, that's exactly what uh, a reservoir engineer does and exactly what our clients will do with the CCS project. They'll get hard data points. That's our job to do that, to give them the hard data points of the rock or the fluid properties. They'll make assumptions where they have to, and then they'll try to model, can I have a 30-year or a 40-year or a 50-year horizon of putting CO2 away into this thing? If they, if they make a mistake in that because they don't have a robust model built on hard data, too many assumptions, not enough hard data, they could find they fill the thing up too quickly or it leaks. And so that's, that I think maybe helps explain the, the role that we're going to play and the task that our clients face. And as it relates to the... the, the, to the um, the regulatory side of it is they're going to have to convince the regulators that they've done this thorough analysis and that they can make this project work and achieve the desired goal of containing the emissions. And I want to ask some more about the that regulatory process, but just because we're talking about the complexity of, of analyzing these storage assets, um, there's been some academic analysis that says, you know, we've got all the storage we could ever need multiples of, you know, the most aggressive um, sequestration estimates out there would never even come close to using all the storage in the world. Um, it, have you seen those studies? Do you have a view on that? And then maybe more importantly with it is, is there a difference in cost of storage depending on the quality of the, of the asset? Or is it really, you know, it's just the transportation, how far away it is from where you're collecting the, the carbon. And that's the most important factor. Yeah, Alistair, why don't you make a comment? Yeah, so, so, so touching on your first point there with the, the, the academic side of things, we, we, uh, you know, we don't really have a view on that. I mean, at the end of the day, our primary role here is to evaluate uh, the containment, the, 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 the volumetrics, the storage volume, as well as uh, any issues arising from the injectivity of that CO2 into that rock. So as I mentioned before, anytime you're injecting CO2, if you're injecting into, a, into an aquifer, the properties of that fluids are changing. It can react with the rock. It can change the permeability. It can create blockage. If we're also talking about injecting CO2 into a, a depleted oil and gas reservoir, so a lot of the focus right now has been on aquifers, but there is obviously other ways to dispose of that CO2. So one of those methods is, is, is EOR, uh, which is we've been doing that type of work for the, the last several decades. EOR meaning? Uh, enhanced oil recovery type work. So injecting CO2, it's a great solvent for displacing even more hydrocarbon and then recirculating that uh, gas back into to push out more hydrocarbon. So people are still looking at that methodology to, to um, dispose of that CO2. The other... Um, uh, focus was on depleted oil and gas reservoirs. So anytime you're injecting CO2 
into a, a depleted hydrocarbon uh, reservoir, you still have enough space. However, that CO2 can also react with that in situ uh, fluid. And uh, you get these precipitates called uh, long chain hydrocarbons called asphaltines. Uh, and those things can, uh, as the name would suggest, is what you lay on the road, those can block up your, your rock and prevent that CO2 flowing in uh, and, and preventing that injectivity. So we don't really have much to say regarding on the, the academics of it. Uh, our job here is to, to analyze that rock, analyze the fluid compatibility, assess whether there's uh, problems and try to help mitigate those risks. So one aspect that I might add to that, Mark, is, is uh, rate of injectivity. And so um, if with uh, depending on the, the, uh, the peculiarities of an individual rock, the rate at which you might be able to introduce the CO2 can be better or worse. Or it could be that if I pump this rock too fast, I'm going to displace fine particles, which will then plug up the pore throats and reduce the permeability, which means I'll, I'll see a declining injectivity over time. Ideal circumstance, I've got a clean pores uh, in, a, in a stable rock that's going to be unreactive to the fluid. All those things have to be assessed. If, if, they, if they have a, uh, say, a nearby target that's economically favorable because of its proximity, but it is unfavorable in terms of its geologic attributes, say, say the pores are too small or the permeability is too low, they won't be able to inject it as fast. So then the economics of the project change. So, so again, just like an oil and gas project, when you want to get oil and gas out of the ground, you want high permeability so that you can get the fluids out faster. When an injection project, you want high permeability. So saying that there is accommodation space on the planet is a rather, um, I'll call it very broad statement. There's going to be places where it'll work better and where it won't work as well. Another thing you've got to be concerned with is fracking the rock that you're trying to put the CO2 in. It's no different than fracking an unconventional reservoir. If you pump too fast, you will break that rock and create cracks. Now, that might be good in terms of helping you put the CO2 away faster, but if you go too far, you might break the seal. So all that has to be measured, geomechanical measurements, how, how elastic and how brittle the formation is, all of that's going to have to be measured and validated, and that's where we come in. So you mentioned the, the aquifer as maybe a better a better storage solution. Just as you look around the world, you know, we're seeing a lot of offshore um, sequestration projects. Is there something unique to offshore that that's driving that? And then, you know, what are the other characteristics that might make, you know, certain certain basins of the world more or less attractive? Yeah. So maybe go back to the first point there. I think there's a range of opinions about uh, saline aquifers versus depleted reservoirs. Different companies have different perspectives on it. Um, I think the saline aquifers are getting a fair amount of attention right now. Um, the Gulf Coast is a, is, a, is a good example here. There's a very thick pile of, of sedimentary rock that's accumulated uh, over tens of millions of years. And, and so there's, there's a, a variety of potential targets there. But it's not only the rock properties, and again, this is a little out of CoreLab's wheelhouse, the size of the structure, the size of the pod or the container has to be assessed. And that's gonna come through seismic. So uh, say for example, the, uh, one of our other initiatives that we've announced is a strategic arrangement with an alliance with Talos. They're, we've worked on them with their oil and gas projects for a long time. They're really good at looking at the seismic picture, 
looking at big scale models of, 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 a, of a target zone. And then we help provide the details of the rocks and the fluids that they incorporate in their models. Well, we're gonna do the same type of thing for them. And so uh, saline aquifer opportunities, I'd say on the Gulf Coast are, are there. I think whether it's onshore or offshore, the rocks will determine where the best places are to put them. So if you have a big structure and it's onshore and you've got accommodative rock that, that's got a lot of storage capacity and, and you can flow through quickly, then onshore will be a cheaper place to do it. But if you need a big structure that you're gonna be able to pump into for multiple decades, some of those structures are gonna be offshore. And so the rocks and the proximity to the emitters are gonna determine where you can look to put these storage sites. Maybe going back to the, the class six permit, can, can you just, to the extent you're able, explain what that is? And we've heard that, you know, it could take a few years. Uh, Air Products is an example of a company that's working on a class six license and storage project in Louisiana. And they've recently said it could take a few years, which I think surprised some people. Um, but maybe talk to us about the, the timeline. And I would think that if all of a sudden everybody's trying to apply for one of these permits and the government's just not equipped to process all of it, that could become a major bottleneck, but just kind of curious how, how you guys are seeing all of that. Yes. I mean, I, I can't speak, uh, terribly directly about the timeline, but I would say that the, uh, the what, what you're, what you're uh, proposing is, is consistent with what we're hearing from, from operators and clients who are interested. It's, it's, this is not a, a quick turnaround couple month process. It's, it's, it's a good bit longer than that. You look at the number of active permits right now, active EPA permits right now, there, there are two active EPA permits uh, and, and a number of others that are pending about 14 others pending in the in the mid-continent and, and in Louisiana and California. Um, and so I, I, I think I agree with what you're saying is that it, it is there's likely to be sort of a, a waterfall of permits uh, on the on the near horizon uh, based on the activity and the and the interest that we're seeing and the number of companies that are that are prospecting around and, and, and poking around looking for potential sites. It is going to be a long process. It 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 I think supports the idea that interested operators need to be very, very careful about crossing their T's and dotting their I's along the way. Because what you don't want to do is get down the road in well into a permit uh, and, and the processes involved there and realize that you didn't collect some data along the way that you should have. And again, that's that's one of the uh, the, the ways we we have a toe in the door and the ways that we're uh, we're we're able to assist clients and, and folks that are interested. You know, again, it, it's the, the, the language and the requirements behind these permits uh, is, is pretty substantial, but the companies seeking to obtain these permits are, are more than accustomed to doing this kind of work. I mean, this is, this is it, it, you know, it, it may be a new scope or topic, but this is, uh, this is part of what's been in, in these companies' wheelhouses for, for a long, long time. Uh, demanding licensing processes and, and using hard data for, for decision-making and to address technical unknowns. Um, you think about what's required to get a, an offshore permit to drill a hydrocarbon well, uh, it, it's extensive, uh, substantial amount of work that needs to get to, to, to be done to, to, to do that, that type of operation. So these folks are competent and, and innovative, innovative and, and they're well-prepared for, for this type of process. I just want to follow up on that, that point, though. Does, does that mean that um, we ought to see some sort of oil and gas company involvement in all of these projects 
or or can can indu- can an industrial emitter just go through the service companies and just use you and use the diversified service companies to satisfy that or do you need that you know sort of to the point you were just making about capability that they've 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 had from getting permits for production um, that they're applying to this this class six process is yeah it's is good. that a gating factor so it's a good question and, and I'll uh, so we talked about the consortium study we talked about strategic alliance with Talos we're also getting projects from individual uh, um, uh, organizations like the CarbonNet project in in, in uh, Southeast Australia. That's not being driven by an oil company. I think, Mark, it's an important point, uh, maybe in, an indirect answer. We've been working on CO2 sequestration projects off and on, and I will call it modest ways, for more than a decade, right? And most of those were a single emitter looking at can I, do I have an opportunity to take some of the CO2 and inject it into the ground? What's changed in the last, I will say, two years or so has been that oil companies, our traditional clients, have now emerged because they're looking for how they're going to handle their uh, in, uh, uh, CO2 uh, reduction programs. They've now uh, gotten into the forefront of, hey, there's an economic opportunity here to, to take what very few people know how to do well drill a deep well in the ground or multiple wells in the ground and put a lot of fluid through pipe and get it and get it where we want it. They, ha- they are the logical and the, I would call it the, 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 the most uh, adept at doing the, these types of filings, building robust uh, subsurface models, understanding the geologic risk. Um, where, they, where they're gonna have to morph to do that is they're probably going to have to go get some midstream and capture uh, collaboration into their um, portfolio. If they're going to do large scope where they're going to try to say, hey, we want to take a refining belt across uh, southeast Texas here, they're going to have to get those emitters and the people who are going to do the collection together. That may not all be within uh, any given oil company, although some of our some of the clients we're working with have pieced together that model now where they've got the they, they go get it, go move it, and now they're going to put it in the ground. They've got all the pieces put together there. Those are the ones that are going to lead the charge on this. Besides the regulatory element, and as you look at the bottlenecks or gating factors that could be, you know, holding back faster growth, what are those right now? And you know, is there a pathway that you see to to kind of accelerating the growth for the industry over the next couple of years? I think I think one of the uncertainties is going to be the political motivation and the, and the intensity of the political motivation. People sometimes ask us, you know, how big, how big could this be in your business? Um, you know, in, in, say over the next five or 10 years. And I said, Hey, it, it can grow. It can be 10, 15, 20% of our business. That's going to be more driven by how hard the regulatory side, uh, the political side pushes companies to engage in these projects. If they push real hard, that part of our business could grow pretty quickly um, over the next few years. Um, and, and if they, if there's maybe less attention paid to it, that may grow a little slower. Maybe if I could add something there as well, Mark. I mean, what we are seeing on our on our whole board here, we're probably seeing eight to ten times uh, the number of uh, uh, projects uh, that we saw, say, 12, 18 months ago for CCS directly. 
and I think from all parts of the world here. So before they can apply for these class six permits, they have to have the data. That's part of the requirements. So we're seeing on our project board a significant, significant increase over the last, as I said, probably 12 to 18 months. So uh, I think that gives an indicator of, of uh, where the, the market is right now and uh, why they're pushing because they need that data to, to get this class six permit. And that and those uh, requests for our engagement are coming from. I mean, it's coming from from um, you know both uh, traditional oil and gas companies plus, as Larry alluded to there, you know Carbonet in in Victoria, Australia. But we're seeing projects coming out of U.S., Canada, uh, Middle East is is really focused on probably the EUR part. Although we're seeing some specific CCS. Um, uh, sequestration projects coming out of even the Middle East. So uh, Latin America, uh, really across the board. So it, it's not just confined to one geographical region. It's not confined to offshore or onshore. It, it's, uh, it's, it's really a global uh, phenomenon that's going through right now. Mm -hmm. well, that, was, that was great. That was a question I had planned to ask. So I might you. I might add to that too that uh, that there is a possibility as companies find pathways uh, toward uh, commercial success with CCS that they may end up driving some of the legislation rather than having the legislation drive their ability to do it as well long term. Yeah, I guess Larry, you you mentioned you know over the next few years maybe this could become twenty percent of the business. I think that's what I heard. Is that that's a stretch? I'd say over the next ten years or so. It, it, it could approach that. I would say uh, in the mid near to midterm, call, call it five to 10% of reservoir description. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? And then if it really gets pushed hard from the regulatory side, it can exceed that. And, and your, your involvement. So you mentioned how, you know, we've got the reservoir description end of it, but then as we start drilling injection wells, maybe there's a production enhancement element to it. That's still all up front, but your, your, legacy business, for lack of a better word, but your fossil fuel business has a lot of production evaluation and monitoring that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, is, there, is there an ongoing service element uh, of the revenue opportunity from, from a carbon project? Yeah, I'd say two, two fronts uh, there that we haven't really talked about. Uh, one is potentially tracing the injected CO2 to look to see whether we get an early uh, uh, indicator of unexpected breakthrough um, that, that there's a leak somewhere, right? Um, and then another is um, uh, quantity and quality value validation. And so at some point, someone's going to say, hey, I, I just pumped X amount of CO2 into the ground. Someone's going to need to independently verify what was that quantity and was it pure CO2 or was there 5% nitrogen mixed in with it? And that we have to deduct from, the, from your scorecard, if you will. And so quantity and quality valuation is right within our wheelhouse. We do that today uh, in, in a number of different areas, mostly on crude oil and and uh, and uh, call it derived products, um, and then also monitoring uh, injection uh, and and flood. We call it in the oil and gas space. We would call it floods of of injected gas or liquids. We would we put injectors in there. We put traces in there to monitor those injection programs. It, it's the, one of the hard things to convey to people that don't have a geologic sensibility is the rocks are not a uniform block 
the pro where the properties are the same from the top to the bottom of the section. They're very variable. So a lot of times what will happen is there'll be high permeability streaks and low permeability streaks. Well, in this case, the CO2 is going to run hard down those, uh, those high permeability streaks and may go to places that they don't necessarily anticipate early on. And it's not going to move as fast down the slow or the lower permeability phases. All that has to be worked into a geologic model um, and a reservoir model. And, and the companies we're working with well-equipped to do that. One other point I'd make is that uh, on our, on our uh, sort of job board that we've got uh, sort of over the next, uh, call it year or so, there are some companies that don't have that oil well or oil and gas experience. They're going to have to hook up with someone that does because to build that knowledge base within a, cult, a company that is a, maybe has an agricultural background or a power generation background, uh, I would say that'd be a really high hurdle for those folks to figure out how to drill and how to build a reservoir model and then to drill and complete wells effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Well, well, thanks. I guess I, I just have one more, and this is sort of the, the question that we've been asking everybody at the end of the discussion is to make a prediction. Um, and, you know, it's not a prediction that we're not asking for guidance or anything like that. It's not something that we're going to hold you accountable, but just, you know, over the next few years, um, what's something that you, you would predict happening? Um, it's really meant to be thought provoking something that's off the radar for people. So each of you doesn't need to provide an answer. One from the team is fine, but however you guys want to do it. Can we have a few minutes to confer? <laughs> um, I, I think the, um, I, I think the unknown here um, is what are the drivers going to be on energy transition and the pace of energy transition and oil and gas? We have a very sort of bullish view on oil and gas demand that I would say the aligns with or maybe even exceeds a bit the EIA, which is their model is saying 30 years from now, we're still going to see um, we're going to see. 20 or 25 percent higher oil and gas consumption than we're seeing today, just to meet the growing demand for energy on the planet. And so I think that people that that particularly in I'll call it Western Europe and the U.S. maybe they see that these projects or move to transition to to uh, renewables or or, or non CO2 emitting um, sources of energy. Um, we hear it and see it and feel it every day. The rest of the world is going to transition from burning wood and and coal and lignite and and other fuels that that are less effective. They're going to be more than making up for the reduction in CO two uh, uh, from burning fossil fuels in the, in the West. So I think that that CO two sequestration will be will be an important player in finding a balance between the continued demand for oil and gas that is going to be required to meet the, the, the growing energy demands of the planet, which I think are being maybe even the, even the high cases are being underestimated as people transition out of, out of third world uh, economies into, into second, first world economies. That's going to be huge. In order to get there, we're going to need to use a lot of hydrocarbons uh, to get there. So catching the CO2, controlling the emissions, I think that leaves, that puts a tailwind behind CCS uh, projects and CCS investment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's, I've heard somebody say it pretty eloquently that you can't have 
energy transition without simultaneously solving energy poverty. Um, and Correct. That's, that's yeah, it's a great way to put it. Thanks so much, uh, Larry, Andrew, Alistair. I think this has been great and uh, we'll look forward to, to catching up again soon. Okay, wonderful, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.